0: Hello and welcome to Finding Games, the podcast where we talk to people who work in the tabletop games industry and find out how they got there. I'm James from Needy Cat Games, standing in on editing and introduction duties for Sophie because she's really busy making some awesome Battlefield gaming table type things from Antic Games. You can check out her progress on Instagram or Twitter or even TikTok because she's young and hip and relevant and cool, honest. I'll put the links to those in the show notes. In today's episode, Sophie is speaking to James Naylor from Naylor Games. We've known James for a few years. Uh, We initially met through some mutual contacts in the industry, but also we just kept seeing him at shows. We'd go to any convention and he would be there with a demo table and a bunch of tireless volunteers showing off his upcoming city-building strategy game, Magnate the First City. Well, he put that game on Kickstarter around this time last year and it was a massive success. I think he achieved nearly 400% of his funding goal. And uh, it was so great to see all of that hard work come to fruition and also since then it's been great fun watching him establish himself and find his feet in this industry and we really can't wait to see what he does next sophie sat down with james in december of 2020 to record this so a few months have passed we've got quite a few episodes still in the edit queue hopefully not too much has changed since this conversation let's find out what james has got to say
1: The big thing as well is that it looks like uh, my work on Magnate at the moment, which obviously is the game that I'm currently trying to get manufactured, Looks like it's accelerating a bit because some delays that we faced in manufacturing have started to abate slightly. So um, that's looking pretty good, and that and that for me is the major, major thing. That that's been my baby as a project for so long that when it's delayed, it's like it affects my whole life. <laughs> that's, that's 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 how it feels. It's just like oh, I just want this to be finished.
2: Yeah, there comes a point in every project where it goes from being something you love and you still love it, but then it it slowly turns into. It just needs to end now. And the, yeah. and that, that last bit is the most challenging, at least for me personally. That is the bit where I'm most likely to sort of go off a project. <laughs> so yeah. that's the bit where I have to be the most laser focused.
1: Yeah, com- completely. I think that that's, that's that's the irony, isn't it? It's, it's exactly the point when you need to have that razor-like focus. That suddenly at the end, it just, mm. oh, it, it's when you really don't necessarily want to do it. And I certainly went through that phase, I think, yep. a couple of months ago. And I think it's only now that, interesting enough, we, we've got down to... Uh, I think to many people I imagine it's a boring topic but hopefully no one in the games industry to refining the design of our insert uh, which is kind of where we're at right now which I'm actually finding quite an interesting process because I've never designed like a vac form insert from scratch scratch before but uh, that's what we're doing right now and it's good because it's it's really exciting from my perspective to think about it in terms of um, the whole product. So it's not just the experience of the game, but but you know pack down uh, and set up, and how quick you can accelerate those by using like cunning insert design. So um, mm. that's actually that's reignited my passion a little bit for the, the in the final stages of this project.
2: Yeah. No. And it's it's interesting when you get like interesting challenges like that when you're having to innovate around something it then becomes interesting again so you know i can totally empathize with the uh having something to focus on it gives you kind of a renewed enthusiasm
1: yeah exactly exactly
2: so uh yeah let's talk about you how did you first discover tabletop games
1: right so i think my interest in tabletop games goes back a really long way um certainly board games in general as i could have certainly known them then Were always an interest from when I was quite a small child. So um, obviously, the first one probably that I ever played and really uh, kind of got into. uh, But then later realised that my parents had deliberately gone really easy on me. Was of course Monopoly. Uh, Mm -hmm. So um, uh, that was kind of one I think that was one of those games that you know that's often everyone's first encounter with tabletop games. Um, and I would say I really enjoyed the whole idea of of, of the whole game. You're, you're spending all this this lovely cash that you've got in your hand is really nice. And then you're building things. And I think the fact that Monopoly is actually a bit of a building game, I think, is pe- people forget that sometimes. And I think in the mm. in the general horror of it, in terms of other ways, in terms of game balance or or whatever, to modern tastes, uh, and then the the, the crushing experience of, of everyone but one player being brutally destroyed uh, has understandably put people uh, put people off it. But there are elements of it I still think that are uh, really really good fun. Uh, and then after that, um, I started getting to some much heavier games really quickly. My, I think probably the one that really clinched it for me was my dad had a game of an, a copy of a nineteen seventies game called mm. Kingmaker, and I don't know if you've heard of this title. But I've
2: heard of it, yeah.
1: Yeah, so it's it's a it's a game about um, the Wars of the Roses. So it's incredibly like a serious historical wargamer theme kind of game. Uh, and but the best part about it thematically for me is that you you have your different nobles and then you give them great offices of the crown, different offices of state. So as a result, you, and you have these parliaments where you you give out offices and things, just sort of like a medieval parliament. And um, it was such incredible thematic fun. We would spend ages not just uh, playing the game, but but having sort of out of game negotiations about what we would do next and drawing up treaties and this kind of thing. And I think that for me was the game that clinched it for me in terms of like just with a few bits of cardboard you could create this in- amazing interactive world that that people could share and create stories with and I think for me that was the that was the moment that kind of got me into them um, but I think what I would say though is that then after that I think like many people pe- people really I lost interest in board games probably when I started becoming like a teenager played loads and loads mm-hmm. of computer games probably way too many of those And it wasn't really until university again that I I really encountered... And I played a game which I would still regard as probably the board game now, which might be the closest to my heart of all, of a game designed by Martin Wallace. uh, And it was then titled um, Railroad Tycoon because it had the official computer game license and it now has the rather more, to be honest, bland title of Railways of the World. And um, when I played that, that would have been about 2007, I think, that I bought that, or 2008... um, Mm. Uh, and I and I played that first time I was just hooked I was like oh my god these games are so much better than the games I played as a child they've come on so much and uh, and then and, and we start playing loads of things we were doing all the classics Carcassonne Ticket to Ride um, Bit of guitar and those things but that was the one that stood out for me This sense of ambition scale theme was just dripping with theme and it was about trains which I also I'm a massive nerd and I also like so um, so yeah that was that was That was really the thing that reignited the interest for me.
2: I mean, that's a standard journey, isn't it? It's quite a common journey Mm, to sort of discover board games as a child and then rediscover them sort of in those late teens, early 20s again. And I think it's really interesting, actually, that that's such a common thread that people have. It's like... You spend your mid-teens kind of learning how to be a grown-up and then you're suddenly like, no, 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 no. I want to go back to playing games and being a kid again.
1: (laughs) Yeah, yeah.
2: So... Once you discovered those games and you started getting that passion back, did you jump straight into working in tabletop games or, or did you go into the, I don't quote unquote, real world first? I mean, it's still the real world. We still have real jobs. Of
1: course. <laughs> um, no, it was, it, was, it was definitely not straight into games after that. And just before we move on to that, something just, you just said, which I think is really interesting about this being a really a classical pattern for, for lots of people, I wonder to what extent that's going to be generational to some extent. Because mm. I think given the... It, it does seem to me there has been a really huge advance in game design in general, particularly from the kind of like yes. Eurogame boomer from the end of the 90s. And that that means there are more people who are going to be maybe going straight into games from having enjoyed them more as a child or teenager. Mm-hmm. Uh, if I think about that, my, um, my lead developer, Jaya he's about almost 10 years younger than me. And what's interesting is that for him, he's there was a more straightforward transition out of games as a teenager into games as an adult. And I mm. wonder if it's because from an early point, he was in more interacting with those kind of better titles. So I'd be fascinated to see, you know, with that superior design is perhaps the best way to put it. So it'd be interesting to see, see what happens. Um, but certainly for me, yeah, it was a kind of classic, classic yeah. pattern.
2: I think that's really interesting, actually. And I, I totally agree with you that I think there is going to be a completely different uh, sort of pattern in in say 10 years time for those people because as well it's more it's more just generally accessible like yeah yeah board games were a thing that my mum and dad had in the cupboard and then I had to buy my own board games which I didn't do until I was in my 20s you know yeah. Um and now you can go into board game cafes a lot more people play them I mean obviously it's not mainstream it's not like computer gaming or uh, you know playing sports quite yet but you know if you go around someone's house you're far more likely now to be like oh do you want to just crack out a game and that's a much more uh habitual kind of ha- like thing that people do now people are much more likely to get those games out and play them with people around their houses and with children and with teenagers and they become a much more uh family orientated experience rather than it being like a well you play them as a child because they are childish things and then suddenly you have to rediscover them and go through that whole experience of discovering board games for a second time where now I think that's going to be uh, far far less common I think you're right and it's, it's really interesting about the impact that's going to have like are people going to just have more of a habit of like oh we'll go to the board gaming cafe or oh, we'll yeah. hang out there so it's something to do um, and I think there's a, a big I've, I've said this before I think in another podcast but I think there's a a big uh, tie-in as well with the fact that like younger generations just drink a lot less and they they want stuff to do while they're also socializing and obviously yeah. current situation aside you know when you go to a place and you have a couple of drinks with a friend they don't necessarily i think there was a cultural thing at least when i was a teenager where you just sort of hammer the drinks because the music is too loud to even speak when yeah, no people yeah. don't want that they want to They want to sit and have conversations and gaming is such a key part of that. Even in like in coffee shops, you see like drafts and chess and, you know, dominoes out a lot more often now. And I think that that's going to become a a much uh, more common foundation to people's experiences just going forward. So yeah. that's a really interesting point.
1: Yeah, yeah, no, I, I agree with you. I think I think it's, it's, you're, I think you're completely right. And I think I'm sure social change around you know the role of alcohol will definitely play. I think a hugely positive role there, mm. and bloody good for games. So um, you know, really, yes. really, really good. Um, yeah. So in t- terms of my my journey into the um, <laughs> out of the real world, so to speak, as you said, uh, and, in, and into games um, <laughs> was um, very yeah very much not not going straight into them. So I think for me, I was you know definitely a hobbyist pretty much straight away in the sense that I was I was really keen mm-hmm. on buying loads of games i think my collection quickly swelled to about 50 or so titles um even probably within a year or two of even leaving university um so uh, so i you know i had a huge interest in that but i don't think i ever thought that it would become it could become a career and i think that's because
2: Mm. you know
1: at the time i was i just don't think i wouldn't just wouldn't have considered it as a job option at all so um i I instead took a slightly you know again a probably pretty classic route in the sense that i went and i did things that um were utterly unrelated so i started off um running a small marketing business i'd done a lot of kind of marketing work at different societies at university and figured that i would just try and see if i could monetize that it was okay it went it went Okay, but not mm. exceptionally. And I ran other little kind of little side businesses as well. So things like uh, I, I ran a walking tour company of Croydon, uh, which uh, oh, wow. which people are very surprised that that you can do walking tours of Croydon. But certainly, um, I ran them, and they were actually quite successful. It was surprising actually that lots of people were very interested oh. by the idea. We got a whole lot of national press coverage for it because I think the, the whole concept of taking a walking tour of Croydon seemed very odd to people so um which is which is which is always great marketing right so just just be controversial so um mm. that was that was it was good and uh, and I kind of ended up settling on in the end thinking right, oh, it's time I've kind of done, done a few entrepreneurial things now and um, they're going okay I can keep a roof over my head but I don't know that it's like the smartest choice from an experience perspective to just keep grinding out these things when I could actually be off you know, gaining some experience and maybe, you know, and actually having a nice, reasonable salary, which would be fun for a change. So uh, I decided, <laughs> not having any money or any, ever, I it would kind of, kind of be all right. So I, started to get, I got an internship and ended up um, interning in a company making recruitment software. And I wasn't there for very long, but what it, what it helped me do is learn how much, or rather let me discover... Uh, the whole discipline of product management, which i'd never heard of before as a as a thing i didn 't think that products were managed exactly i in fact I had no idea how products were created in general if there was if there was a specific role and I think most people don 't know about it because they most they think about most businesses they say well okay if it's a you know if it 's a company selling insurance, they do insurancey things or if it 's a company mm. doing games well they 're kind of game designers, they make gamey things. And maybe what they often don't understand is that a lot of companies um, have a problem, which is that their products are increasingly very complicated. And um, if it's not the CEO of a startup directly looking after the product, someone has to kind of bring all the strands together. Like, is it going to be profitable? Um, What are the resources required to make it? Do we have the people Mm -hmm. on board? Who's going to manage the people to make a product? Like, if you look at digital things, for example, why I ended up in in the world of digital advertising eventually, um, some of the products that we were managing are incredibly complicated. And they, you, you quickly discover that this kind of role exists of a product manager in, in companies whose job it is to work across multiple different departments, bring all the different skills, expertise, and coordination together to produce a product that works. And it's a bit more than like a project manager job, which I think is something that people generally understand, where a project manager is in typically given a particular project that has to be executed they don't get to decide the overall direction of why or how they well they don't decide why or what they just decide how so they they would make sure the project gets completed what they wouldn't do is get to decide what projects we should even do in the first place and the cool thing about a product manager role is that in that role you get to decide the what both the what and the why and i think that that was really great so for example the recruitment software I was in charge of wireframing and coming up with what the features would be of this recruitment platform to help recruiters find candidates more easily and then, and then I moved over to a digital advertising company and that would have been in oh, sort of August September 2012 and yeah. uh, there um it was a very different kind of product but the same kind of role where the goal was you're looking after in, in my case it was a product that was an insight tool so what it let people do is um it let advertisers do analysis on what um interested different audiences basically and so i looked after that that product i had to do, again decide you know what should the next set of features be what is the overall long-term objective of what we're trying to do how are we going to get new more customers those kind of questions and that's then what kind of actually I realized was, a, was something that I was really excited to make a career of, because I think it was one that it just flicked all the buttons. There's so much variety in it, and, you're, and, and they often call the, the, the product manager is like, um like a mini-CEO. And I think that's a really good description of what the role is, because you're deciding everything about a product. It's, it's yours. You own it, and I. And that means, by the way, you own it when it goes wrong as well, which is obviously horrifying. If a whole company is very reliant on something, and you realize you're driving the thing the whole company is relying on, then um, it gets a bit scary at times. But it's thrilling as well, and um, yeah, and, and, and in the digital space, because you know, there's, it's still a very fast growing. There's more demand for the skills than than there is supply of people that can do the job, which means that you know salaries are good and there's just tons and tons of of always exciting new frontiers opening up. Um, yeah, just created a you know that was that was that was a, that was a, a wonderful um,
2: environment to work in. Well, first of all. That is the best explanation I've ever been given about the difference between a project manager and a product manager. Um, Yes, excellent. (laughs) And I I worked in uh, IT recruitment for a very short amount of time and, again, learned that product managers are a thing and I didn't even know that. Like, I hadn't really even comprehended that someone who makes a website, there's like a front-end developer and a back-end developer and that those are two different jobs. Like, there's so many jobs out there which I didn't even know existed. And it's really interesting because uh, tabletop games are exactly the same. Everyone thinks about game design or artwork because those are the two things that are on the box, right? People's names are on the boxes, and artwork is on the box. But no one thinks, uh, well, or not no one, but uh, you, not many people think that they think about there's editors and you get different kinds of editors as well you get like usability editors and you get you know your sort of traditional kind of you should put a foot, full stop there editor but you also get editors who work out about like the order in which rules get laid out in a book yeah. and then you've also got people who design the where the punch board tokens go so they're laid out the most effectively and sometimes that's a graphic designer but sometimes they're people who specialize in that um so there's uh, there's all these different sort of opportunities and, and you're right they, they exist in every kind of part of every industry and uh, it's really interesting for you to, to describe it in that way because it clearly informed your decisions going forward. And what you do now, and I'll let you explain what you do now because that's probably more interesting.
1: Yeah, well, I, I mean, I think that firstly, that's kind of I'm very glad to hear that that is a good explanation because I think it's something that I do try and mm. try and try and explain what that role is, and, and I think why what why therefore it's kind of interesting. Um, so, so as you say exactly, there's a, such a variety of roles. I think with games, just just to mention on games, I think it's really interesting. Is that um, as you said, I don't think people even are really aware, always, that games have publishers unless they're like a hobbyist. Mm. And they begin to understand that the yeah. publishing companies are all different and they've actually often got their own kind of unique culture and style that leads to particular kinds of games that t- they tend to produce. So... Um, so, so people don't even know that. So, let alone the side and the the editing, for example. So, there are so many different kinds of of editor you can think about, um, and what you call them as well. Because, as you said, like a, I would generally think of a rule book editor as someone who made decides the order in which rules would be explained, for example. Um, but actually, I would probably call the usability person maybe a usability designer, and I think that's interesting because what I've already seen in games is like it's is that there's a there's a it's board games and tabletop games in general exist in this really interesting cross section between book publishing and and mm. something, and computer games, so because I 've come out of this digital product industry, I tend to use all digital product terms to describe the roles of what everyone's doing in the organization, but I noticed that actually if you go to for example, I was looking at Osprey games, they were advertising some roles, and they all sounded like book publishing roles, and I think that's really interesting because I 'm thinking actually, I bet some of these are the same roles in reality, yeah but but they they're coming at it from this publishing culture versus a, a kind of product development culture, and mm. those two things are actually very different, so in terms of their in subtle ways in terms of the emphasis that they put on different aspects of what's going on so um yeah so i think that that's kind of really interesting so if if we talk about that i guess then how i guess then this is a good way to to go into how that plugs into my uh what i do now and and how i kind of got into this at this point well um i had been way back in 2011 i decided i want to design a board game and the board game that I'd, uh, I, and actually I, I kind of did come up with loads of random designs as a child, tons of them. But then more recently, <laughs> I, I, I'd been working on a few different concepts, and I and I came up with this concept. I came up with a concept for Magnate, and um, it just struck me that I wanted to make a game that was like a property theme game that would be based on how property actually works. And that interested me because at the time in Croydon I was doing all these tours and I'd had to learn a huge amount about the local environment architecture and I'd ended up learning a lot about the local property industry because it was going through a bit of a bit of a boom at that point. So I actually ended up a lot of this randomly weird knowledge about how the property industry works even though I've never worked in it. So um, I, I thought, well, hang on a minute. I could bring this to bear in a game that would be a kind of have this um, property game much like Monopoly's property game, but nothing like it mechanically and also it would have this strong SimCity vibe. And I was like, ooh, mm. that would be great if you could bring these two things together. And the reason I thought that is most of all because I, I, I hadn't yet seen, and I'm going to be really brutally honest here, I've still not yet seen a game that nails completely 100% the SimCity thing. And I think it's because fundamentally yeah. thats that you're a solo person masterminding this ever more infinitely growing uh, city, like something like all City Skylines, similar titles and that's actually incredibly hard to do as a competitive game um and therefore really a a for a city builder to be truly satisfying i thought who would be a natural thematic fit for a city builder uh that would work and it would be the role of a property developer rather than the role of like a of a mayor Mm. so that's what inspired me to do that so i sort of came up with this game thinking well this is just a bit of a hobby you know i like these board games I guess I might as well have a go at making one. It was not my thought process, really, for it. So I, I sort of created that first version of it. I made a prototype that was just way too big. I mean, I wasn't even thinking about it properly at this stage. I, I created a prototype that had a two-by-one-metre board. Uh, which wow. we, <laughs> and, <laughs> and the buildings were made out of Lego, but because I'd started with the house, right, which was this big, I decided, well, I want to make it a realistic scale, which is completely wrong. So I created the skyscrapers, which were, like, this big. You can't even see them Oh hang on No one can hear this podcast I'm holding my hands Really really far Apart from each other To give you an idea If I describe it If the house was The height of two Lego bricks Then the uh, Skyscrapers must have been About 50 or 60 bricks high So they were sort of like Completely realistic heights And things but and they were wonderful to play with because you, you, you just plomp down this enormous skyscraper. Building. It was very satisfying, but, um, but um, utterly, utterly impractical. But to be honest, for me, it was just like, well, we're just making a silly game that's, 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 that could be really cool, but is, is, is not destined yet for any kind of serious product development. I would not begun to think about my career in product management and how the two things interfaced. And then for years, I basically just kept playtesting it. And I kept, it kept coming back to it because I felt like there was something there that was really good. So, I kept coming back to the concept over and over and over again um, and gradually developing it, shrinking the board down substantially so I could actually take it to places to play test it at work, for example um, mm. and then um, uh, i uh, and then eventually I decided you know what I think there's something really good here that could be published, and really as late as December 2017, I was still toying with actually not. With, with trying to get a publisher to publish it rather than doing anything myself. And it was only really then that I was like, well, hang on a minute. I'm running the product management, well, actually an engineering department as well, the combined departments of a um, uh, a multinational online advertising company, you know, that's got offices in different parts of the world. And, I, and I've got a couple of product managers working for me. Um, you know what? I've actually got the skills to do this job of publishing it from scratch. I don't think... Um, mm-hmm. I'm gonna give it to someone else, and I'm gonna be completely honest, I think it's probably definitely a, uh, both a, a strength and a weakness is one of those things where I have very particular ideas about how my creative project should be executed. And uh, mm-hmm. let's be honest, that would probably make me the nightmare designer to work with. So um, uh, because probably I'd be going, well, oh, but it really has to be this way. And this is my vision and all of that stuff, which is all sometimes a bit difficult, I think, um, if you let it get too much in the way of practically doing things. Um, but I, I just realized that the publishing process, a lot of people have kind of warned off other designers from doing this. And I think, by the way, very sensibly. And I would also warn mm-hmm. them off jumping straight into the self-publishing process. Um, uh, f- what fire, I, I guess, or like, like out of the frying pan and into the fire, really of self-publishing. I think you know, obviously, you you know what's involved in publishing is pretty substantial. Um, but the, yeah. the, practically, um, b- b- for the reason that most of the time that people warn people off this is because um, there's actually most of it is not about game design, and I think some people go into thinking, oh well, the game design that's eighty percent of it, and the other twenty percent is just you know. You know all of the art execution, play testing, production management, manufacturing, marketing, sales channels. Bah! You can do all that stuff later, rather than it being the exact opposite distribution and perhaps yes. even worse. Maybe maybe the game design's only ten percent. <laughs> I don't know. Um, so uh, so, but I I kind of knew that, and I thought, well, but that is what my job is—is is thinking about those kind of things anyway. So why don't I just give this a go? And then. Um, because I kind of got to a certain position where my company could still make use of my services. Um, I went down to becoming a part-time person in 2018 for my company and I continued doing consulting work and different bits of and bobs for them. And uh, while I sort of found replacements for me and helped them in terms of restructuring their teams, that kind of thing. And um, it gave me a chance to start working on Magnate as a, as at least a part-time job rather than just doing it as a kind of in in a few stolen hours in the odd evening here or there and really take it to to market. And, um, yeah, and and that's really how it all happened. And to be honest, probably even as late as end of 2018, I wasn't sure that I wanted to make it my full-time job because Mm. there is so, you know, I need to tell you how much there is involved in publishing. There's so much. And I don't think you really know that you actually enjoy enough of it until you've done it. Um, mm. to continue uh, and I think there are some people I know um, there's a designer who does lots of solo modes um, particularly for Alicat Games a guy called David Digby who's um, a brilliant developer he's one of the, I think he's one of, one of the best developers I know he whenever I ask him because he's got these designs about self-publishing he's just like no nope, absolutely not I know I don't want to do it because of these yeah. reasons I have no interest in all of the other marketing and sales side things and I think that's yeah. a very sensible position to take um, and, uh, but, but if you actually you are interested in those things then actually maybe self-publishing is a really good option for some people because it's one that enables you to bring your whole dream to life and actually sort, yeah. of, sort of nurse it through the entire process is, is, is actually incredibly rewarding um, if you are up for doing all of those things that are way outside of game design um, and yeah. so, re- and so, really, that that's how I ended up here. And then it was sometime, really, in 2019, that it started to hit me. Actually, I really do want to do this as a full time thing. Mm. And I because I, we've got a whole load of, you know, already Nailer Games has got a whole pipeline of different things in in, in, in potential in in the pipeline. And I actually um, would uh, would love to see them all get produced. And it's there's something for me that's so rewarding about seeing people play a game you've designed. I mean it's just Mm. such a wonderful experience you know when someone's when a whole group of people are having a tremendous fun with something you've created it's just it's just it's just brilliant it's like a net good for the world um, which I think is just uh, yeah it's just a wonderful thing to get an opportunity
2: to work it is amazing when you see people enjoying something that you've made like uh, I don't think there's any better feeling at least for people who are inclined to make games um and I I still am not used to it. I still see people commenting online about playing games that I've written and I'm like, Ugh, there's people enjoying a thing I did that's weird." <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And uh so I totally get the the desire to want to pursue that and to to make it a reality, to to make sure that people can you know, enjoy something um of yours also i need to say at this point that i am going to be deeply disappointed if in a few years time there isn't like a massive scale game of magnate that i can play at some sort of convention <laughs> even if it's made out of lego i'm desperate for that now
1: Oh my god! I would, I would love to do that. In fact, actually, Lego, Lego was the perfect prototyping material, and even the smaller prototypes that mm-hmm. were actually suitable for tables uh, were, in fact, um, also Lego. It's such a great <laughs> prototyping material. So, I would love. To, oh my mm. god! I would love to do that. A gi- giant magnate, sign me up already. I'm going to see what I can do about that if I if but I can.
2: I'm going to claim ownership of that idea. Even though <laughs> it's totally your idea in the first well, place. Well,
1: we can we can negotiate royalties after the uh, you know after the podcast. <laughs>
2: Uh, indeed indeed um so that is a really fascinating approach though and I really appreciate you being honest and saying you know I'm aware of my own need to control things and so therefore I felt that this was a better route and I think that's a really important thing for people who are going into the industry is to be self-aware of themselves of like what things they love what they really don't love what they uh what they're good at and things that they need to learn and it's really it's really refreshing to hear someone be like oh yeah i know that i would be like a nightmare client so actually (laughs) that wasn't for me um and that's that's great though because that meant that you actually were able to put your energy into the thing that was going to make your product successful for you and i think there's a lot of people out there who like especially with self-publishing i think people who uh make their own game they're like, oh well, now I have to kickstart it, and I have to, I have to self-publish because that's the, that's the expected next step, and that isn't for everyone. And mm-hmm. actually, there are lots of publishers, and there's lots of people out there who will produce your game, um, or you know, and this is a thing that I say to people a lot of the time. There's nothing wrong with not wanting your game to be commercial. It's fine for it to just exist as it is, and for you to play it with your friends. It, it's weird that we kind of get into these places and I've caught myself doing it absolutely where you're just like I need to do the next step even if that's something I don't really want to do yeah. or I don't enjoy doing um, so it's it's really interesting to hear your insight about like taking stock of your skills and what makes you tick and what you enjoy and pursuing the aspects of your project that are tailored to you as a personal individual and I think that's really interesting so uh, I think the next thing really is to then talk about what is your number one recommendation like if someone was to come into the industry following you now what would be the tip that you would give them
1: oh that's such a that's such a tough question because I think there are so many things that I've learned which I'm sure a lot of people say this when they, when they ask them, they, you ask them this question uh, that um are worthwhile uh passing on but I actually think it, it's to go back a little bit to what we were just saying and I would say if I have to pick yeah. one I think it's Think really deeply about your skills and really consider what your strengths and weaknesses are, because the reality is this is such an amazingly diverse industry with so many different exciting um, things kind of going on potentially within it That's that's getting more you know it seems to be from my perspective getting more inclusive involving people from wide variety of different walks of life that um, that, that there, is, there is room for everyone like there is 100 percent in games something for everyone to do. Yeah, but they may not all be the same thing. So I've already met people. Some people, for example, who are uh, really strong developers. They're brilliant at picking a game apart and going, "This is what you know. This worked for me. This didn't work for me. This is. Have you tried X? Have you tried Y? But mm. as designers, necessarily, they might not be as always as innovative because actually, it's much harder. Because it's it's not harder. It's just a different skill. Some people naturally come up with wacky ideas. They just let's run with it. Other people are very good at yeah. finessing them. Uh, some people are, are are brilliant artists, so I've seen some designers who naturally are also artistically talented. So they do all their own artwork. And it's really interesting because yeah. I think sometimes it, it brings a kind of coherence to things that's really yes. cool. But also it means that they can get they actually self-publishing is often a better option for them because they don't have a huge amount of art costs. Which, for mm-hmm. example, um for Magnate, you know, I think we had something like seven different artists working on it. So uh a lot more expensive. Um so um uh, you know, and I think about think about your relative strengths and weaknesses, and then build uh, think really about that, and then build a niche around it. And I think what I'm going to say with that, so it's kind of like a part two bit of this advice, is don't. <laughs> I, I'm going to say this right now. I think I'm very fortunate that I don't suffer tremendously with imposter syndrome. I am I am very lucky that my approach to everything is just like, oh, that looks interesting. I will give that a go, regardless of whether or not I'm any good at it or not. It doesn't really matter. Uh, hopefully, I will be. Let's just see where we can go with this. I think a lot of people I know in games are like, well, I'm not sure I could do this. Or like, I don't know I'm as good as X or as good as Y. And yet, I the thing I say to everyone like that is just remember, because this has been my experience as well, everyone is making up as they go along to some extent. Yes. Right. Nobody
2: knows what they're doing, and we're all winging it.
1: <laughs> we're all winging it. Like absolutely, we're all winging it. Like <laughs> I, I've never designed a vac form insert before, but I lo and behold I had to do that this week to make sure that we had the right design for usability. Um, it probably won't be the world's best insert when it comes out. Realistically, that's that's because I, because I don't know. But it'll probably still be all right and do the job because at least it's specified exactly to the rest of the game. Um, so within that think about your strengths and weaknesses don't be too down on your strengths or overstate your weaknesses mm. either as part of that like i think its yeah. thing is like just you know this games are truly for everyone so just give it a go and actually um, um and but if you spend some time thinking about what your strengths and weaknesses are being being honest in a positive way as well then i think actually mm. you you'll find maybe a more tactical path that will help you you know really work really get a lot out of games and all the people i know that have done really well at something have got some awareness of what they're good at and they're applying that consistently over and over again so I think that that would be my big tip
2: it's a very important part about looking at your skill set and applying that to what you want to do to build a niche but I also think like you said give everything a go and I would say the most important part of it to allow you to guide into that niche is actually about what you enjoy because if you're bad at something but you enjoy it you will get better at it if you keep doing it and failure isn't a bad thing it's just make it's the thing you have to do before you get good
0: <laughs> and
2: yeah if yeah. you hate something don't build your business around doing a thing you hate and i think that is a thing for me that I needed to learn because I felt obliged to be like, okay, well, we're going to go into self-publishing eventually. You know, we'll make games for other people for a few years and then we'll self-publish. And actually we realised that we don't really enjoy doing all of the stress of a Kickstarter and that's not a thing we, yeah. we enjoy. We can do it. We can tough it out. But why are we doing something we don't enjoy? Yeah. And that's that's almost more important. So I, wouldn't, I would say absolutely look at your skills. Let yourself create a niche. And be self-aware enough to identify those things like you said, you enjoyed learning about all of those different aspects of production. And that was the thing that meant that you did it and you got better at it. So allow that kind of that self-awareness to guide you into your niche. Um, is is my little addendum onto that because i think that's a really really amazing point.
1: I think that no that's so that's so true because often you learn about your strengths and weaknesses by doing things, right? That's that's part that's mm-hmm. how you do it, That's how you understand because actually a lot of people could be quite surprised that they they do something for the first time and realize, you know, i'm not bad at this. Great. You've just discovered something new, which is wonderful and I, and therefore really important and yeah, crucially be guided by your enjoyment of it. Like it's very easy to think, well, we kind of have to do x or we have to do y and you know there are going to be times like that you know if you if you take on the publishing of an entire project from scratch there are going to be bits you don't enjoy about it but um, don't let the feeling of should drive it too much I think is, is really good advice because I think it is yeah. exactly what you're saying is that you know for, there will be a way there will always be a way if you think about it to find your way to apply the skills somehow so um, because if, if you've got skills that you know that are that other people want there's going to be a find a way to, to find a place in the industry there always is
0: Oh, there we go. Thanks to James for a really fun chat and thanks to Sophie for doing a great job of hosting as always. I'm not just saying that because she's standing behind me with a variety of sharp tools. I asked James if there have been any big developments since they recorded this episode, and he tells me that Magnate the First City is due to start shipping in the next few months, so that's good news. Uh, Also, he started up his own podcast, Producing Fun, in which he talks to people about the nitty-gritty details of getting a tabletop game published. I think I need to listen to that one myself, because that's kind of a big gap in my own knowledge. Um, I also want to give him a big shout-out for his role as a mental health first aider over the past year with uh, COVID and everything else that's been going on. If you're a regular listener, you might have noticed we haven't mentioned the Needy Cat Games Patreon this time. This wasn't a mistake on my part, honest. It's because we've decided that, after a lot of thinking and consideration, we're going to close the Patreon down. We started it when Needy Cat was a new venture, and we've never really been quite sure how to use it. We're so busy these days, and we've got so much else on our plates, that we'd rather put it on hold than keep it running and stress ourselves out trying to make it good value and produce good content for it. If you've been supporting us on Patreon, we honestly cannot thank you enough. You'll still have access to everything that's on there. We just won't be adding anything new to it. If you'd like to throw us a few pounds to say thanks for the podcast, Sophie's got a Kofi account. We checked the pronunciation of that, uh, which I'll link in the show notes. An even better way to help us out is to give this podcast a review on iTunes or wherever you've listened to it. That actually helps us reach new listeners, apparently. Either way, thanks for listening. I've really enjoyed this, and hopefully we'll see you next time.